It's great having you all here. Thanks for joining us. Our ranks are just Sunday by Sunday, gradually coming back and filling up. It's just good to have you here. Good to have you here with us. We're in a series, Word-Rooted Prayer and Worship, Keeping Your Heart Close to the Flame. And this is uh, kind of a, a mini set in that series, New Testament Worship and the 21st Century Church. We've been looking at that particular slice of the series for a couple of weeks now, seen already in earlier messages that God's not only interested in the priority of worship in our lives, though we looked at that, but also in the way in which we practice worship. In other words, it's not only important that we worship, it's also important how we worship. Remember going back a month or so, we looked. Remember the story of Uzzah? Any remember the story of Uzzah? Yes. The ark of the Lord is on a cart, and it goes into a little hole or a rut, and it's starting to fall, and Uzzah reaches out because he doesn't want to see the ark of the Lord in the mud, which is a very noble desire, and the Lord strikes him dead. That's what it says. He didn't just have a heart attack, or it wasn't the devil, the Lord strikes him dead. And the idea there is our actions in God's presence have to be according to instruction, not just according to sincerity. And I showed you in that teaching how very clearly God said the ark was never to be upon a cart. It would be carried on the shoulders of the priests. Now, many people hold the idea that because we're now under the new covenant, the, the, the post side of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that that example that I just gave is not really applicable. People will worship in spirit and in truth, Jesus says, and they take that to mean that now worship is totally an inward thing. It's just a, a heart thing. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, It's now a matter of personal understanding, inward promptings, inward inclinations, and no argument from me that there's an element of precious truth to be defended in that view. It's it's easy for worship to become just mechanized, ritualized, formalized. Not that those things are always bad, but... Mankind has this horrible propensity to create ritual, a religious ritual, out of almost anything that was initially designed to be life-giving. So that much was true. But we also need to remember that the Holy Spirit who comes among us to lead us into worship, to stimulate our awareness of God, the presence of Jesus, 
It's the same Holy Spirit who gave us the record of the early Spirit-filled New Testament church. It's the same Holy Spirit who preserved a pattern of how the New Testament church made its approach to the Father's throne in worship, and all of that creates an issue for today's teaching on worship. I don't think this gets taught a lot in detail in our churches. That that means one of two things. I'm out to lunch trying to do it now. Or it might be something that needs an emphasis that suffers from a little bit of neglect. I'm hoping it's the latter. There's so much in the Bible relating to worship. Here's the thing. Some of the things we still do, some of the things we no longer do, and I think the common perception, maybe not always thought all the way through, the common perception in the average evangelical church, if you just popped into any church worshiping on this Sunday morning in Canada, the, the common perception would be that, well, okay, so Lutheran people, they might be a little bit more conservative. They probably wouldn't sing the two choruses that we open the server with in a lot of Lutheran churches. Anglicans, depending, maybe you can have an evangelical Anglican church or a very liberal Anglican church. Alliance, well, they can kind of go either way, depending on what the pastor is. Pentecostal churches, well, they're the ones, they raise their hands. And it, it's a denominational background kind of thing. Probably some truth in it. But I don't think it's the whole picture. Is it all just up for grabs like that? That's my question. Are we free, each one of us, simply to do his or her own thing in a way that we're comfortable with, in a way that fits in with the body where we're worshiping? Does God really care how we do it? Isn't it enough that we're genuinely sincere in our love for him? Isn't that enough to have on our minds when we worship? Well, you think about Uzzah once in a while. Yes, Pastor Don, that's Old Covenant. And it is. You're right. It is Old Covenant. And right in making the distinction of that observation, we become aware that there are some differences between the practice of worship in the Old Testament and the New. We get that. You would have been surprised, I think, if we had hauled out a little lamb here at the beginning of the service, maybe right between those two opening songs, and butchered it. We don't bring two goats, release one of them into the parking lot, off Crowder, slay the other one. We don't burn incense. We don't have to take the blood of a lamb and apply it to our right earlobe when we come into the sanctuary. Yes, it's in there. Read it. So there's just a whole bunch of changes in the way we worship. But what changes and what remains constant? Could you answer that question? Would you have a way of processing it? That's why I this might be a little more work than is typical on a Sunday morning, but I think it comes right down to the roots of what we do when we come into this place. Like, I think it's important. I'm spending time because I don't think it gets covered a lot. It isn't the kind of material that maybe leaves people feeling just blessed in their seats in church. I wouldn't do it all the time, but... I, 
I think it has such practical relevance to a host of other issues that do keep our lives blessed and spiritually sharp and informed. If I don't, if you don't and I don't understand today's teaching concept, we'll just be vulnerable to a host of, of uh, some really hot-headed teachers who rip isolated verses from the Old Testament and try and make you feel less than spiritual because you don't imply it, apply it to the way they insist, particularly true in areas of worship techniques where you have special diets and banners and dancing and locations and podcasts and a host of other things. Here's what we want to get at. How do we sort this out? What? What instructions and patterns are binding and which, even if they aren't bad, are not necessary? I mean, we know we don't carry over everything from the Bible into our modern worship practice. So so it just forces questions to the surface. Is everything a matter of taste? Is absolutely everything still required? Do we have to ceremonially wash our hands? And I don't mean hand sanitizer. When we come into the sanctuary, do we still have to abstain from lobster and crab? What about styles of dress? Can we now wear garments woven of blended fabrics? Or is that still off the list like it was in the Old Covenant? Most of us know those questions have a ridiculous ring. Pastor Don, oh, 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 of course not. We know, we would say almost instinctively, that those specific teachings, those Bible teachings, they aren't applicable to the church today, and that's true. The real question we need to start at is why some things are no longer compulsory for the church. I mean, we know they aren't wicked commands because they came from God. You want to keep them? I suppose you can if you want. There's nothing wrong with them, but they aren't necessary. So let's back up the boat, lay the foundation to deal with why some of these Old Testament injunctions are no longer compulsory for the church. That might give us a footing to deal with other issues as well. Point number one. Always start with the New Testament and interpret the Old Testament in the light of it. Let me give you an example that has nothing to do with congregational worship. Let's just consider the subject of let's consider the subject of the creation of the world and Adam and Eve in particular. As you know, there are plenty of questions about the early chapters of Genesis. A lot of people wonder just how literally those chapters are to be read. Were Adam and Eve two actual individuals made on a specific day of creation? Or are they a picture? I have books, a lot of books in my library on the shelf. And they'll tell you that Adam and Eve are a picture of the whole human race. Were they two historic people? Or were they something symbolic and something mystical? And, And... To my mind, the best way to approach those chapters of Genesis is to go somewhere else first. Before you get into Genesis 1 and 2, 
Look somewhere else. There are New Testament passages that will shine some light on the early chapters of Genesis. Let me show you where you might begin. You might begin in Matthew chapter 9, verses 3 to 6. The Pharisees came to him, that him, right there, that's Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them, made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, this isn't a sermon on marriage or divorce, but this passage does teach the principle of interpreting the Old Testament in the light of the New. What is relevant for today's study is the fact that Jesus bases all of his instructions on marriage and divorce on this literal account of the original man and woman. Here's another example, maybe even stronger. Here's Paul arguing theology in Romans chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Yet death reigned from... Do you see these two names? Do you see where, if this is a real person, that pretty much has to be? Do you see that? Because he's talking about from a certain point, Adam, to a certain point, Moses. You can't take this one to be a real person and this one not, or there's, there's no distance here. Even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's, who's this? One man's trespass. That's Adam. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift, the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So one of the reasons I believe Adam was an actual, literal, distinct person is I believe Jesus Christ was a literal, distinct person. Paul's whole argument, putting Adam and Jesus in the very same sentence, Adam's life has real, solid, historic consequences for the human race. And then Paul says Jesus' life has stunning consequence for the whole human race as well. So Adam and Eve, Adam and Jesus rather, stand together as real people. If Adam can be explained away, so can Jesus Christ. I mean, the fall and the need for redemption, <laughs> they're joined together pretty tightly. Be careful explaining away Adam. You may just have explained away Jesus. The point of those examples is the best way to come to a good understanding of the Old Testament is always to read and understand it in the light of the new. Let the New Testament illumine, control, and regulate your interpretation of the old. That doesn't mean, please get this, doesn't mean we think the Old Testament is somehow less inspired than the New Testament. It's all God's Word. It's all equally inspired. Theologians speak of the confluency of the inspiration of Scripture, which means it extends to the whole Bible. 
You may not think it's all equally relevant, but it is all equally inspired. And remember, the revelation of the Bible, it's an unfolding revelation. And just let me interject here. That doesn't mean revelation moves from the untrue to the true or the less true to the really true. As Greg Boyd, Brian Zahn, Peter Enns, Brian McLaren, Rachel Held Evans, and a host of others would have you believe. It's all equally true. But it does move from the incomplete story to the whole story. It does move from preparation to completion. It finds its fulfillment in the incarnation, life, and death, and resurrection of Jesus. After Jesus ascended into heaven, he poured out his spirit on his church. So here we are. Church today is the body of Christ. We're awaiting the return of our Lord. While we wait, we evangelize, we worship. And the direction in our worship we have in the writing of the apostles, the first inspired leaders of the church, to give us guidance on how we approach God's throne. All the other Old Testament scriptures lead up to their fulfillment in the new. But the final picture, the complete story, it's contained in the pages of the New Testament. I want to go on to point number two. And Chris came into my office putting this slide together. And he said, you either have to come up with shorter points or we have to get bigger screens. I didn't know how to say it more succinctly because there's a lot in here, okay? Point number two. This is where the meat of the sermon is. This will take most of the time. Major on worship expressions that are seen to be, and there's two things here, that are seen to be permanently binding either by being carried over in practice from the Old Testament to the New or are clearly introduced in the New Testament and presented as permanent additions to the worship of the church. Let me try and guide you through that. There are two things I'm saying you need to look for. If you want to know what the church should be doing today, there are two things. One, look for worship practices that are in the Old Testament, okay, but they're carried over into the New. They keep going. That's one thing to look for. Everybody follow that? They're introduced in the old, but they don't stop in the new covenant era. They keep going. Look for those things. Or B, look for worship practices that are introduced in the new covenant. They're brand new. And they're specifically said to be ongoing for the church age. Those are the two things I think we need to look for if we want guidance in what should we be doing when we worship. So no, that was just a point, not the whole sermon. I know there's a lot in there. I think the concept is too important to leave unpacked. I think there probably are many churches, even those with fairly vital life, but couldn't tell you why they worship the way they do, except 
they've just come to do it that way and people seem to like it. People go to these different churches. They settle in with varying degrees of comfort based on usually nothing more than the fact that the church's worship style fits what they're used to. But biblically, they may or may not have a clue why one style might be better than another. In fact, they would actually feel that it's almost narrow-minded to even admit that one pursuit of worship might actually be better in terms of being biblical than another. So we're going to spend a couple of weeks looking at that second principle in this teaching. We're going to look at this principle, remembering the foundation already laid that Old Testament interpretation must be regulated by New Testament interpretation. So now we'll move on from that foundation to apply it to the subject of worship. Starting with this second point, we'll just begin today. Read that second point, not out loud. We must major on worship expressions that are seen to be permanently binding, either by being carried over from the Old Testament to the New, or introduced in the New Testament and presented as permanent additions. Let's just take that second part of the statement and consider it. Consider some of the new patterns and instructions of worship introduced in the New Testament and emphasized as ongoing in the life of the church. Should be the easiest part of the worship study. Aside from a few cultural nuances, we are the New Testament church. We live by the words of Jesus the teaching of the original apostles. We are still the body of Christ, called out, not just from the Jewish religion, our roots, but from all races and nationalities. And we gather, as the early church did, with certain goals, certain disciplines in common. You know this verse. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers, teaching for all becoming first on the list. There's this simple picture. Building blocks of church worship in the New Testament. And there are other practices that became habitual in the New Testament church as well. These things weren't just done once or occasionally, but repeatedly, some of them at our Lord's command. Think about some of these. Believer's baptism. We're doing that tonight in church included by our Lord in the Great Commission, baptizing them. The Lord's Supper, which we are to do, quote, until he comes. Those form some pretty obvious cornerstones of New Testament worship. Good examples of that principle. Things introduced in the New Testament and indicated to be permanent and ongoing. There's simply no questioning the ongoing place of those expressions of contemporary church life. Let me just pause. It's not my role to judge other churches. Jesus is Lord of the church. My concern would be it's, it's precisely the Lord of the church who mandates the ongoing practice of the Lord's Supper and believer's baptism. 
There are churches right here in Newmarket who never, ever obey the command to baptize believers and never, ever have the Lord's Supper. Never. To me, that, that fails the grade of, of the body of Christ. How often are we to have the Lord's Supper? Well, different churches do it different, but it's supposed to be until Jesus comes back. Surely it's supposed to, it's supposed to be happening. Believer's baptism. Other pieces of the picture get formed, not by direct command, perhaps, like those, but by the place they had in the practice of the New Testament church. This would include other things from the concept of gathering for worship on the Lord's Day, proclaiming Christ's resurrection from the dead. The resurrection has never been undone. I'm not faulting churches. You want to do a Saturday night service? Whatever. I have no problem with any of that. I'm simply saying there's no theological reason from changing from worship on the Lord's Day. You can add other things to it. Think about other things. Tied in with this would be the regular giving of financial offerings on the first day of the week. That has good textual support, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Then we know there should also be the scripturally ordered exercise of the gifts of the Spirit in spite of what all sorts of denominations teach, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. It's mandated. Don't despise these things. Don't discourage them. Regulate them by the teaching of the Word. Don't let them go nuts. Prayer for the sick, James 5, 15 to 19. It's ongoing, introduced in the New Testament and ongoing in the life of the church. The public reading of Scripture, Paul talks about it. The teaching of the Scripture by the apostles. Paul encourages Timothy not to neglect it, 1 Timothy 4.13. So all of those practices, they find their root in the direct instruction of the Holy Spirit through the original apostles for the church age. How important are these things? Why are they commanded and demonstrated repeatedly in the New Testament? Here's why. This is not just a technical teaching. These things generate life. These things will generate life. They generate freedom. Freedom usually isn't found by cutting loose. Freedom is usually found by digging in. It's found in the forms and footings of biblical worship. So, think of the Israelites putting the ark of the Lord on a cart just because that's the way it came to them from the Philistines. It was easy, quicker than carrying it on your shoulders, and a lot lighter, and a lot more convenient. It's it's what everybody seemed to be doing. That's how they received the ark. But they hurt themselves by not watching the instructions. My opinion is real revival is rarely the top blowing off. Real revival is usually the bottom falling out and roots going down. 
Are you taking just, just those obvious New Testament forms of worship? Are you, are you taking them seriously enough? Are you thinking you'll find more rest for your soul on your own terms than coming under the yoke of Christ? Anchor your worship life in the word of his, the word of his grace. We'll look more at this in weeks to come. Remember these two things. Here's the takeaway, all right? When we're looking for what we should be doing when we come and fill this room, you shouldn't do anything just because some leader has a neat idea of something to do. There's two things that regulate what we do in this place. Two things. Old Testament practices that are carried over into the new, right? Practices introduced in the New Testament and said to be binding for the New Testament age. And I'm talking about this church and any church. Don't stay in any church that doesn't follow those patterns of how people should worship in the body of Christ. It's not enough just because somebody finds something thrilling. That'll fizz out pretty fast. <laughs> Anchor it in the Word. You may notice I didn't do a devotional. And the reason I didn't is because I wanted a minute. Singers, musicians, I don't know if you're hearing me, but wherever you are, you guys can kind of come out and get ready if you want. I wanted to talk to you about prayer for needs. It's a passage of scripture that, call it the Lord, call it whatever you want, that's just been on my mind a lot. I've been thinking and thinking and thinking about it. This, what we're going to do, prayer for needs, praying for the sick and praying for needs. I read it in the sermon. James says this should be ongoing. and It's not a Pentecostal thing. It's a Bible thing. I'm thinking about the story of Elisha. It's in 2 Kings chapter 6. I'm going to just take my devotional time, but I'm here. Don't count this as sermon time. I finished the sermon. Elisha and this young man and this massive enemy that's marching against them. You know that story? And the young man is scared. And Elisha tries to comfort him, and he says, There's, there's more with us than against us, you know. And it doesn't comfort the young man at all. Because all he can see is the enemy. And Elisha prays. And he doesn't pray that God will come. God's already there. Elisha prays and he says, Lord, open his eyes to see open his eyes to see there's more with us than against us because all he can see all he can see is what's against us and I look over this congregation and I think about people dozens of people who come into church and and uh you're not, you, you see the worship team up here singing praise him forever and house of the Lord. And, and you're sitting there 
through the whole thing and you're saying, I don't, I don't feel an ounce of joy, Pastor John. All I can see is a diagnosis from the doctor. All I can see is this financial burden. All I can see is what's going on with my family. All I can see is how huge this enemy is. And oh, I'd like to pray God would take hurting, broken, wounded, godly people. And God would just come and say, I know you can see how big the enemy is. But there's more with you than against you, even if you don't feel it right now. There's more with you. That God would open eyes. It's called faith. That God would open eyes and see. And he shows this man, this young man, the hills are alive with the chariots of the Lord. It's a great story. You don't need to pray that God's going to come like he's been far away. We need to pray that God's just going to open the eyes. There's more with you than against you. You have to see it.